Well, hello and greetings. This is Stuart Haynes, the host of the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. And thanks for joining us. As I'm certain nearly all health professionals are aware, there's been a literal explosion of cannabidiol products, or CBD for short, since the passage of the Farm Bill in the United States in late 2018. A few months before the Farm Bill was passed, a prescription cannabidiol product, Epidiolex, was approved by the FDA for the treatment of certain seizure disorders, uh, including Lennox-Gastaut and Trevet syndromes. Epidiolex has been shown in randomized controlled trials to reduce seizure frequency by nearly 40% in patients who were not previously controlled on three to four anti-seizure medications. So clearly, cannabidiol works. Unfortunately, after the passage of the Farm Bill, a deluge of unregulated over-the-counter products have entered the market. And many of the claims regarding the benefits of these products are unsubstantiated. CBD oil is claimed to improve pain, sleep, anxiety, and depression, reduce nausea and vomiting, improve acne, reduce muscle spasticity, prevent diabetes, and have a neuroprotective effect in patients with multiple sclerosis, and even anti-cancer effects. Now, some of these benefits seem a bit far-fetched, but there is little doubt that cannabidiol has pharmacological activity, and when used in appropriate doses, might have therapeutic benefits beyond the treatment of seizures. One of the areas where CBD has been most widely touted has been the treatment of pain. Some have suggested it could potentially be used in place of opioid analgesics, particularly in patients with chronic pain. So that's why a recently published study in postgraduate medicine caught my eye and why I've asked my colleague, Dr. Alex Mills, to critically appraise this study. Dr. Mills is an ambulatory care and HIV specialist at the University of Mississippi Medical Center Adult Specialty Care Clinic. So, Alex, I'm so pleased you could join me today. Welcome. Thanks, Stuart. I'm glad to be on the podcast and talk with you and your listeners today. So, Alex, I'd like to start with a case study. Uh, I want you to imagine that you are seeing MB, a 37-year-old African-American female. MB is HIV positive and has a history of IV drug use. MB states that she suffers from chronic lower back pain. And when her primary care physician refused to refill her opioid prescription a few years ago, she turned to street drugs to treat her pain. She was discovered to be infected with human immunodeficiency virus after a pharmacist who was providing clean needles to MB had encouraged her to get tested and later helped her get plugged in into an opioid use disorder treatment program. MB tells you, that lady saved my life. Well, currently MB is using the buprenorphine naloxone sublingual tablets, Zubsolve 5.7, once a day to treat opioid use disorder and a single tablet regimen for her HIV, Strybil, which is, contains L-Vitegravir, Cobacistat, Entracitabine, and Tenofovir Disaproxyl Fumarate, which is a once-daily tablet which she takes for HIV. To date, MB has not had any AIDS-defining infections and has tolerated treatment well. She states that she's really compulsive about taking her medications. Not only does she use a pillbox, but she keeps a medication diary. 
She expresses concern about continued use of the buprenorphine and because, quote, she doesn't want to be addicted to that stuff anymore. And she's worried that her back pain will only get worse without something really effective. Her Narcotics Anonymous sponsor told her she should try hemp oil and claimed that many people who use hemp oil no longer need to take painkillers. So Alex, before we discuss the study you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary, I'm wondering what's going through your mind in a case like this. What additional information would you want to collect and assess during this encounter? And would you recommend any treatment changes today? Yeah, so first, assessing the state of her HIV care would be on the forefront of my mind. I'd want to look at her latest CD4 count, which is a surrogate marker of her immune status, and HIV viral load, or efficacy of the antiretroviral therapy. We would want to see an undetectable amount of HIV in the blood and cross-reference that when the lab was drawn in relation to her history of being on current complete medication regimen. She's also of childbearing age, so we would need to ask about sexual history and consider a pregnancy test, as this may necessitate a change to her HIV regimen. Now, when I see a patient living with HIV who concomitantly has opioid use disorder, I have a lower threshold for identifying medication-related problems, as these patients are at high risk of relapse and poor engagement in care. It sounds like she's subjectively adherent to treatment, and I'd follow up with that with an objective review of a prescription monitoring program like INSPECT to look at the fill history of Zubsolve. I'd also want to know if she's experiencing any opioid withdrawal symptoms, including anxiety and cravings, and if she is, then coordinating with her provider prescribing her medications for opioid use disorder on adjustments and coping strategies, plus asking about other opioid use. Now, speaking of non-prescription medications, I'd have a more focused discussion on any other medication use, especially herbal supplements and cannabis use, as these could affect treatment of both her conditions. For example, I'd meet with a new patient on my panel that initially appears to have a complete medication history, only to discover them receiving a PDE5 inhibitor through a telehealth service or a slew of herbal supplements, frequently including a supplement with CBD, which a lot of times ends up being endorsed by a trusted friend. So, Alex, let's talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. Uh, The study was published, as I mentioned, in Postgraduate Medicine in January 2020, and it's entitled Evaluation of the Effects of CBD Hemp Extract on Opioid Use and Quality of Life Indicators in Chronic Pain Patients, a prospective cohort study. Now, we provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study design and its major findings? This was a single-arm study that sought to evaluate the effects of hemp-derived CBD-predominant oil soft gels in patients who are receiving treatment for chronic pain. And these eligible participants were between the ages of 30 to 65 years old, were classified as having moderate to severe chronic pain lasting at least three years, taking opioid analgesics for at least one year, and had a total morphine milligram equivalent dose, or MMEs, of 50 milligrams daily or more. There were 131 participants who were instructed to self-titrate their dose of CBD whilst continuing their opioid analgesics, and were interviewed in four-week intervals for a total of eight weeks on their dependence to opioids, the primary outcome, as well as several quality-of-life indices for their secondary outcomes, 
So pain, disability, and interference in activities of daily living, sleep quality, and mood. Along the lines of opioid use, the investigators also assessed the participants' willingness to taper their opioids using the readiness to taper visual analog scale. The study population's age ranged from about 39 to 70 years old, and they averaged a total CBD dose of 30 milligrams daily. Now, by the end of the study, the investigators stated that 50 participants reported reducing their opioid medications, their readiness to taper their opioids, and improvement in quality of life, yet this was only statistically significant for sleep quality and pain intensity. Ultimately, the study authors concluded that hemp-derived CBD can reduce pain, opioid use, and improve the quality of life of those experiencing chronic pain. So like so many studies involving unregulated pharmaceutical products, the study is not without potential flaws. Uh, What do you view as the strengths and weaknesses of this study? Are there any sources of bias that you're concerned about? And do you think the findings of this study can be generalized to the real world or applied to your patient, MB? So let's talk about the strengths first. In this area of research, the eight-week study period is quite long when evaluating cannabinoids for analgesia, as previous similar studies have been conducted over just two weeks. The use of well-known quality-of-life indicators like the PHQ-4 and Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index were appropriate for the secondary endpoints, along with the demographics represented. A growing number of these aged individuals using CBD products anecdotally report CBD-improved sleep and mood. They also recorded what the common total daily dose of CBD used by participants and the amount of CBD per dosage unit, which sets the stage for future studies. Now, there are some important limitations to consider based on the data reported, however. While investigators reported a reduction in participants' opioid dose, the magnitude, or really any objective number stating by how much, was not reported. If we saw, let's say, a 25% reduction in a patient's total opioid dose, for example, my colleagues and I would certainly appreciate the clinical significance of that information. Without it, it's rather difficult to come to the same conclusion as the authors. Additionally, much of the evaluation on opioid reduction or willingness to taper came from an interview with the participant, which introduces the risk of response bias. Many patients experiencing chronic pain take non-opioid therapies as adjunct therapy. I'm thinking of either gabapentin or amitriptyline, yet this data wasn't reported. The age range and sex of participants are reported, yet data on race, socioeconomic status, and payer source were missing. And since this was conducted at a private pain clinic, the uninsured, lower socioeconomic status individuals may have been excluded which we know are at an increased opioid overdose risk. Now, along the lines of participants, the authors describe in the results how 131 participants were recruited, yet 34 end up not completing the study period with not really a clear explanation as to why. Lastly, I think it's important to note that the primary author is employed by the company funding and supplying the CBD supplement. Now, no conflicts of interest were explicitly declared, mind you, but the risk of significant bias still exists. After balancing the published results with the strengths and limitations of the study, I would consider applying these results to patients on stable opioid therapy, seeking relief from the associated sequela of chronic pain, like sleep or mood disturbances. 
I'm hesitant to apply this to a patient with a diagnosis of substance use disorder as previously published data on cannabis and preparations that contain tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC for short, have demonstrated abuse potential. What remains to be seen, however, is the abuse potential of CBD only or CBD predominant products and the abuse potential they may possess. We also have to consider the wide variations in unregulated products on the market, sometimes making patients compare apples to oranges, raising the safety and liability concerns, recommending a non-FDA approved product. Certainly, a safe and effective alternative or even adjunctive therapy to opioid analgesics, such as cannabis and its components, are of high interest. Yet, I think we need more high-quality data before we can start recommending it to all our patients. Well, Alex, let's return to the case. I'm certain many of the patients in your practice use herbal products. While some patients do ask about whether these herbal products or nutritional supplements are safe to use, Most actually don't think to tell us about them. So it's obviously important to ask about their use when gathering a complete medication history. And in this case, MB is asking about potentially using CBD as a way of getting off of opioids and treating back pain. So I'm wondering what you'd recommend. Would you try to dissuade MB from trying CBD oil or would you encourage its use? If MB elects to use CBD, what advice would you give in terms of product selection and dosing? Well, with any patient, I'm completing a risk-versus-benefit analysis when recommending treatments, and my threshold for concern is rather low in a patient with HIV. So MB's antiretroviral regimen contains cobacistat, which mainly inhibits CYP3A4, with some inhibition noted on CYP2D6. So, cannabidiol is metabolized via CYP2D6, and we have studies showing an increase in CMAX and the area under the curve of CBD in this scenario, yet it's considered not clinically significant. Thankfully, this interaction should not affect her current regimen, so HIV suppression should be maintained, yet I'd still closely follow her viral load at the next three-month visit. Now, getting back to MB specifically asking about the CBD oil, and if it could help them get off opioids or the Zubzolv in this case, my preliminary answer is, well, we don't know for sure yet. I'd explain that the current evidence, including the study that we just discussed today, doesn't definitively point to a role in reducing pain and the subsequent tapering of opioids, where her current medication for opioid use disorder does have the evidence behind it. Plus, we can be confident of what is in the prescription product versus the wide variations we see in CBD products. If she still wanted to use CBD oil, however, I'd counsel her on the higher risk of adverse effects, some being additive with the Zubzolve and the others from a weak drug-drug interaction with Strybild, which could include excessive drowsiness, nausea, and sometimes anxiety. In terms of dosing, I'd stick with starting at the lowest possible dose and titrating to the intended effect, plus consider only using it at bedtime due to that risk of drowsiness. Lastly, I'd encourage her to closely look at the label of whatever product she selects and can afford, looking for information that contains minimal THC on the label. I don't want it to create a positive drug screen and jeopardize her treatment for opioid use disorder. Ultimately, 
it really would come down to me having a discussion on realistic expectations and encourage her to explore her concerns on continuing her current therapy for opioid use disorder with her provider before making any significant changes. Well, Alex, I want to thank you for joining me today to discuss the role of CBD for the treatment of pain and, and potentially how it might help us reduce opioid use, particularly in patients who have a history of opioid use disorder. Unfortunately, I think this study only provides us some glimpses at what the potential benefits would be, and there's some significant limitations to the study design and its execution, as well as potential biases in terms of the funding sources, or at least the conflicts of interest of some of the authors. Well, tell us what you think. Is cannabidiol a useful adjunct for the treatment of pain? And what about for the treatment of sleep disorders or anxiety or depression? Or is it all hype? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. You can become a member of iFormerX. It's free to healthcare professionals. And if you're looking to earn continuing education credit, I've got some good news. You can earn CE from reading the written commentary and listening to this podcast. Just follow the link listed at the bottom of the written commentary on the iFormerX website. And lastly, a special thanks to Deborah Barnett, who is a clinical pharmacy specialist at Community Care of Lower Cape Fear in Wilmington, North Carolina, for her enthusiastic support to iFormerX over the past 10 years. Not only has Deb peer-reviewed several iFormerX commentaries and served on our editorial board, but Deb has recruited new members and authors. So thank you, Deb, for being a part of the iFormerX family. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor in chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.